0: Welcome to this episode of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. I'm releasing this episode a little early for Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving weekend on Wednesday. That way you have something to listen to while you're commuting to friends and family for the holiday. So for this episode, I am bringing you a feast writer, Joel Rose, who is working with Anthony Bourdain to bring you the book Hungry Ghosts, being published by Dark Horse Comics, on January thirty first, 2018, under the Burger Books imprint of Dark Horse Comics. Joel and Anthony Bourdain are writing this four-part anthology series, Stories of Yokai, Yuri, and Obaki. Well, we all know who Anthony Bourdain is. He's the host of the television show on CNN, Parts Unknown. My guest, Joe Rosen, is a good friend of Anthony Bourdain, and his novels include Kill the Poor, Kill Kill Faster Faster, and The Blackest Bird, Both Kill the Poor and Kill Kill Faster Faster have been made into feature films. The Blackest Bird has been translated into 13 languages. He worked on previous graphic novels, Get Jiro, and Get Jiro the Prequel, Blood and Sushi, with Anthony Bourdain. And here we're going to focus on his upcoming anthology series, Hungry Ghosts. Artists include Paul Pope, Alberto Ponticelli, and Vanessa Del Rey. And if you like this podcast, rate and review on iTunes. Your comments and ratings go a long way and are very appreciated. Let others know that you like the podcast. Let's go on to my interview with Joel Rose, co-writer of the anthology series Hungry Ghosts, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks.
1: Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure.
0: I want to start at the beginning. Uh, you were born in L.A., raised in New York. Uh, well, it's sort of a classic
1: story. My, you know, my um, my mom was basically a an old an old maid, and uh, some somebody gave my dad a, a phone number when he was coming back from military service, and uh, he called her up, and three weeks later they were married, and on their way to LA and uh, got into a a car accident once they got out there. My mom was already pregnant and uh, spent she spent the last four months of her pregnancy in Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. I was born and then they came back <laughs> to the Lower East Side. <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. Now, like your father, was a waiter. You also worked as a busboy and a waiter.
1: I did. I uh, I started working when I was like about 14 years old, I guess. I had my first dishwashing job and uh, <laughs> I pretty much worked in every restaurant in New York City over, uh, you know, through graduate school.
0: Wow, that must have been quite an experience.
1: I loved it. I loved it. I was just, I made a lot of money. It was really fun. I just I felt like I owned the city I used to work a late night shift. I would get off at like two, three in the morning go down to Chinatown. And, uh, uh, this Chinese restaurant would be closed and they would be waiting for us and, uh, and they would have a hung shoe fish, a, a sea bass split up the back full of vegetables. And those guys were playing fountain in the back and, we would walk in the door. I felt like, you know, I felt like the king of New York.
0: I envy you so much because here in Little Delaware, we have some nice restaurants, but it's nothing like going to a big city where there's a lot of uh, a variety of food, ethnic food, a lot you can try.
1: It's amazing. It's an amazing place. It's just um, because just, just as you say, you know, there's just every ethnicity, and and you can just sample whatever and eat you know, in the fringes pretty easily and pretty cheaply. Although with the time, you know, when I was talking, it was really cheap. (laughs) It was really cheap. But my dad, you know, my dad came to me one day and he said, "Uh, listen, I did not work this hard. You did not work this hard for you to be a waiter. If you want to be a writer, go ahead and be a writer. And Chris, I, I I had no idea how to do that. Um, you know, I, I had an MFA from Columbia. I you know, I wanted to be a novelist. I went to school to be a doctor. My you know, like I told you, my mom was in this car accident. My mom was sick my entire life growing up and our family doctor who was on East Seventh Street between Avenue C and D said to me, you know, you be, when you grow up, Joel, you be a doctor and you'll cure your mom. And, uh, I went to be a doctor, you know, I was good in science and stuff. And and the first day I was there at college, um, you had to write an essay and I wrote a, I wrote this stupid story about when I was a kid and I, you know, I, was, I, I was born in California. So my, my grandmother got me a little cowboy outfit. I was about four years old. And I wore I wore it out on the street and the kids were unmerciful, you know? And I came in crying and my mother took me outside by the hand and said, Joel is too a cowboy. He was born in the West. So I wrote this stupid story, you know? And then I got a call from the head of the English department. That evening, and he invited me over to his house. And I had, my dad, you know, I grew up in a working class fam. I never met anybody like this. His name was Otto Schoedron. Uh, he was a rhetorician. And uh, he took a copy of uh, James Joy's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and he put it in my hand, and he said, You feel this? You feel the heft? He said, "This is a novel. I think you can write novels," and I was like, "Ah!" Oh! And you know, it just was it it that was it. I mean, that was it. And um, yeah, I've been writing ever since.
0: Wow, that's wonderful to have that kind of support. I I took a, a different path. I was going to college, and I was going to be a doctor, psychologist, which I didn't do. And uh, when I finished one of my English exams, the English teacher said, "Oh." are you an English major? Like, you know, she wanted me to write more, and I was like, oh, no, sorry, psychology. I probably should have just <laughs> kept going her direction, but oh, well, that's the way things turn out. I wanted to go back to your time as a waiter. You know, part of a good dining experience is excellent food, great ambience, and also having a rapport with the staff. Now, when you worked in all those wonderful restaurants, did you meet a lot of people and develop a rapport with some of the customers and get to know them rather well, some some real characters? <laughs> Oh, man,
1: you do not want to, know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I certainly did. I'm, and I'm, I met people who I stayed friends with, but I got into a lot of trouble as well because, um, as I said, I had so much money and... Um, I was running around pretty heavily, and I got involved with some uh, gangsters in in this restaurant I, I was working at in Sheepshead Bay. And they would come in. It was two two young couples, and they would come in every night and uh, leave me like a hundred bucks every night. And I knew who they were. You know, I, I pretty much knew who they were. And, uh, one day I went, I went into the bathroom and the guy at the next urinal was the younger guy, this real handsome, you know, Brooklyn streetsy kid. And, uh, he was pinned. I mean, he was, you know, I could see he was high on drugs. I was fucking around then too with drugs and we got into, I met him later at, uh, a subway stop in Brooklyn with not that much money, but some money. And I gave it to him and I never saw him again. And uh, the next day, his buddy and, and his wife came in uh, to the restaurant. And she, was, she was the daughter of a pretty heavy uh, Brooklyn gangster. And he was sort of like a tough guy who had, you know, married into the family and, you know, he sat down in my station and I said like, you know, what the fuck, man, you know, I saw Billy today and he, he just, uh, you know, he, 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 beat me out of some money and he said, were you the guy at the subway? And I said, yeah. And he said, call me later. He gave me his phone number. He said, call me later. You know, after my shift, I did call him. It was really late. And he said, call up Coney Island Hospital and see what happened to your friend, Billy. He actually broke both of the guys' legs. He called me a brother, and this guy shouldn't have done what he did to me. And I didn't really understand what was going on, frankly. The next night he he called me up at the restaurant, and he sent the limo over. The limo after my shift took me over to the Golden Gate motel on, uh, on the Belt Parkway, and he was waiting for me and he he offered me it's like very complicated deal with some girls and drugs and all kinds of stuff, and I said. Okay, that sounds great. He sent me home, and I didn't take the car. I didn't take it to to my house. I took it to this restaurant where a friend of mine worked who was older than me was sort of a mentor, and I sort of explained to him what I'd gotten into. You know, what I, I said, yes, you know, wasn't this a great – and he said, Joel, you're a fucking idiot. You know what – he said, call this guy up and say, no, you're not going to do this. He said, you do not want to be involved with these people. And, oh, yeah, it's sort of like I came out of a haze or something. Oh, yeah, you know, that's right. And so I tried to call the guy up, and he would not take no for an answer. He, he went back and he said, I called you my brother. You're my brother. He said, you cannot do this. And it got really crazy, complicated, dangerous. And I actually wound up going with my brother to South America for a year. And when I came back, all four of these people were dead. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah. I was wondering, like how could you extract yourself from all of that? But I guess you have to go away for a while. I guess you did. <laughs> and then I went to...
1: <laughs> what had happened was, you know, my dad told me to get, you know... wanted me to get a a writer's job I didn't know how to do it so I started I was typing for a typing service you know it was before computers I was typing for a typing service and a script for Kojak came through and you know I thought of you know I was like into Raymond Chandler and you know I I thought I really knew a lot of stuff and you know I was an artist with a big a over my head and You know, I said to my boss, I said, hey, you know, there's some problems with this script. You know, when the writer comes in, I'd like to have a talk with him. And he said, Joel, if you say one word to him, you're fired. But the guy came in and he was really a lovely guy. His name was Leonard Cantor. And uh, he said, you know, I, I talked to him and he said, hey, you know, if you ever come to Hollywood, you have a job. And when I came back from South America a year later, I contacted him and he was good to his word. And I went out there and I worked for him for three years. I worked on all these TV shows, you know, Kojak, James at 15, McMillan and Wife, Cat and Dog. And I hated it. I hated it because I thought I was, you know, I thought I was a better writer than that. Because he, he was, this guy was an amazing structuralist. He could He would set things out. But he he wasn't good at dialogue and stuff, and he just had like a series of young people like me who would sort of fill in, you know, it was almost like a coloring book. You know, you would fill in dialogue and stuff, and it was an interesting way to learn, even even for someone like me who resisted it every way.
0: I see. So it was very formulaic, and then you just filled in the color in between for him. Exactly. Mm. Now, eventually, though, you did start your own literary magazine between C and D. In the early '80s, so I guess that's when you finally had a chance to break out and do what you wanted to do. I
1: would i left. Um, I stayed in Hollywood for three years, and then I left to to write, you know, novel. And I was living in Montreal. You know, I'd fallen in love with someone, and Catherine Texier, and um, you know, we went to Montreal, and then we bought—we had a kid, and we bought this you know, place on the same block where my, where my mom had grown up, was born and grown up on, you know, Avenue C, um, uh, 7th street East 7th street between Avenue C and D. So I moved back there and I got a book contract and it was just when personal computers were coming out. So I bought a computer and I realized that I had a printing press, you know, and I was living in a very heavy neighborhood, very much a lot of drugs, controlled by gangs, burning buildings all around us. And, you know, they were selling dope out of like little glassine envelopes. And I had this printing press that was putting out these sprocket things and my, I, I was drawing with my, with my daughter on the paper and it was look, it had like this gloss to it. It looked really, really good. And then I just started, I, you know, I knew some writers, young writers and I put up posters and I put together like this little magazine sort of in these with the sprocket paper still attached, you know, that fanfold paper. And, um, and I drew the each cover individually. And then I just brought them to St. Mark's bookstore East Side bookstore on St. Mark's place. And by the time I got back there, they, the phone was ringing and they'd already sold out. It became like overnight, like this sort of amazing calling card sort of for a whole group of writers and you know, like. The Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney, the Guggenheim—they were all collecting these issues because it was the, you know, the heyday of the '80s when the art scene there and so artists would do different covers. No one like me—I did every cover individually. But you know, we had a whole variety of covers, and it was just every one of them was just beautiful. I think we had about six computers at the end, just going full time, twenty-four-seven. It was crazy. And anchors, you know, like. The ribbons would go around, and I would be pouring ink on Oh, man, it was just fun. <laughs> it was just, it was really fun.
0: That's how I met Bourdain, through that. So is that when he sent you an unsolicited pitch for a comic? Yeah. Okay. What, what, what was your reaction to that?
1: You know, I grew up with comic books. I, you know, I, I just thought, um, you know, it just came in the mail. I, I had no idea who he was. He was nobody. He was, you know, a line cook somewhere, Um I just, I, I, you know, I read it, I looked at it, and it was interesting, but the, I didn't like the art, but it, but the writing was good. I wrote him a little note, I guess, and then the next thing I know, he was at my door. You know, he just I knocked one day. I, you know, he was down there, like I said, it was a pretty heavy neighborhood, and I think he, he was down there to score, and he just, so I, you know, between C and D is right around the corner, so he just came by, and then... You know, we spent time together. We just always spent time together. You know, we just, I I, I really encouraged his writing. Um, his fiction writing is what I, what I knew him as, you know, and he, he was good. He was definitely, there was something there that was really good. He didn't have any confidence. He busted his ass in the kitchen. He was not, he's not a top of the line chef, but he's an amazing organizer and he's also someone who crews wanted to work for. So he had a really good crew, and he was a fixer. You know, they would bring him around to when there were problems, like One-Fifth and Supper Club, you know, a lot of places. Ed Sullivan's, So they would bring him in, he'd bring his crew, and whatever was going south would not go south anymore, but it wasn't like it suddenly became, you know, like Michelin, Star restaurant or either.
0: Now you said that first comic you liked the writing but not the art. Did he do his own art for that first comic? Yeah. Oh wow. He
1: thought he was a con- you know a comic artist. He you know he loved all the you know Mad magazine and mm-hmm. Art Crumb and he, he loved all the good stuff.
0: You said you read comics. What did you read at the time?
1: At that time, I probably was not reading comics. I was pretty much into writing fiction and. Doing this magazine, you know, I, I read tons of stuff when I was growing up, but um, nothing that crazy. You know, it, I was, I, you know, I was Superman and Batman and Little Lulu and Archie comics. For me, I liked everything, and I had a good collection, but they were they were definitely read. <laughs> you know, every every one of them was probably read a zillion times, and my mother eventually threw them out.
0: Oh, yeah, my first comics are, are very well-read. They're not worth anything to anyone, but they, they were mine, and I, I actually still have yeah. them.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, you do. You're oh, so
0: yes. Lucky. oh, yes. Oh, so yes. <laughs> I, I held onto them tightly, yes. Yeah. Around early 90s, um, after, between C and D, you actually did work for an arm of DC, Paradox Press, and you were doing some editing of their mystery books. Can you tell me about some of the people you worked with there and some of the relationships that you established? Andy Helfer
1: contacted me. Uh, I had written a screenplay with Amos Poe like the director. Um, and it was called La Pacifica and Premiere Magazine had said it was the best unproduced screenplay in Hollywood. That was a joke. It was, wasn't but whatever. And the next thing I know, you know, Helfer contacted me and he said, "Hey, you can make this movie." and budget unlimited, do whatever, whatever you want. I'll give you a contract. And I just did it, man. I just, I just sat down and wrote the the comic book script and he read it and loved it. He he had a whole bunch of books um, scheduled. He just put it to the top of the list. It was called La Pacifica. And, um, and then he offered me a job because I had edited between C and D, you know, And he said, why don't you come over and uh, edit this new mystery line that we're starting. It was fantastic. (laughs) It was a ball. I mean, like, you know, I was working with the writers, and then I come into this place, and I get a whole group of different kinds of people telling stories with a completely different vocabulary from my own, and I just, I loved it. I loved working uh, with the people I worked with. You know, I worked with... um, Tayar Oscon, you know, a Turkish guy with um, La Pacifica, and uh, Richard Pierce Rayner on Road to Perdition, and uh, Vince Locke on History of Violence, Robin Smith on Green Candles, Randy DeBurke on Hunter's Heart. It was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. You know, Andy is a complete legend in comic books, and um, it was amazing working for him. He he w- he didn't exactly give, give me my head there, I'll tell you that. I mean, he, he's just a control freak, and that was frustrating <laughs> at times. But it was great working with him. And then you know, Vertigo was in its, its heyday. You know, DC was just doing great stuff. Mad Magazine was downstairs. It's like, it was a dream. It was a dream.
0: And then eventually, you and Anthony did get together and work on a comic. Uh, Get Jiro was the first one in 2012.
1: He'd been after me for a while. He wanted to write a comic book, and he had an idea. He told me he had an idea. And I, I just sort of was putting it off, putting it off. And then he was here at my house for Thanksgiving, and his poor daughter got sick, and she was she was real little. And she, she was on the couch. I think she had thrown up. And before he left, he just cornered me and said, "Like, let's do this." I had just seen um, Matt Johnson's Incognito that that Vertigo did, and it was just, you know, Karen Berger did it at, at Vertigo, and it it was just so good. And I said, "Okay, Tony and I just whipped up a proposal like in just a couple of hours, and then." I just contacted Karen Berger who I knew from when I worked at, at DC. And I said, are you interested in this? And she got back to me like immediately and said, yeah. And we set it up there and uh, they got us uh, Langdon Foss who just like, I mean, speaking of like having an incredible opportunity to work with like an incredibly gifted individual. I mean, the guy's a great artist, but he was such a a wonderful thinker as well, and he had a great sense of humor. So I had written this script with Tony, but Langdon just brought so much more to it than, than I had put in the script, you know?
0: I will never eat sushi the same way again. I will be- <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: me, me too, man.
0: Me too. <laughs> I'll be very mindful.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very careful. I
0: was going to say, I really appreciate the attention to detail to Japanese culture and etiquette. You know, things that, that really bothered Jiro when he went into Bob's establishment, like people sticking their chopsticks in the rice straight up, slabbing, you know, their sushi with soy sauce, all those really offensive things to people who love sushi like I do. You also worked on the prequel for that book, uh, The Blood and Sushi, and now, coming up very shortly in January, Hungry Ghosts. And you're working with Karen Berger again.
1: It was a similar thing. You know, Tony had this idea, these Japanese ghost stories, which I tell you the truth, I was not even aware of. I mean, maybe peripherally. Yeah, we, you know, he talked to me about it. We worked up a proposal. I sent it over to Karen. She'd just gotten the gig at um, at Dark Horse. And. You know, it was the same thing. You know, let's do it, and she said, "Yeah, let's do it." And we got we we started like, I think this was just last May, and we just tore through it. It was one of these incredible experiences. She's like so top shelf and so astute, and we just had a ball. You know, it's it's about um, this game that uh, that's Edo period samurais played. It, it was. Uh, sort of this social thing where they would get together and and tell these weird stories, Kaidan stories, and they would play this game called Hundred Candles. They would each light a candle and tell this story and try to scare each other. And at the end of telling their story, they would blow out the candle and then peer in a mirror to make sure that they hadn't been invaded by... By a ghost, by a, a yokai or a yori or an obaki, you know, monsters and spirit demons and ghosts and shapeshifters, all these phantoms that turn up in Japanese um, folklore and literature.
0: And with these stories, one of the things you found is that what scares the Japanese people isn't necessarily what we find frightening and vice versa. There's there's a difference in culture and how these stories work. So you, you went to some different places for your heart.
1: It's more subtle, and it's more couched in retribution, and it has to do with hunger. And we took traditional stories. God knows we did a lot of research, and we've, we've set them all over the world. It's, it's told by, not by samurais, but by chefs, and it's told in a modern setting, and it's its own game of, of hundred candles.
0: Is one of the stories going to deal with a creature, a ghost, I should say, a kappa, that goes after <laughs> your shiri kodame, is that right, your kodama? Tell us a bit about that. That is, um, that would scare me. <laughs> oh, man. It's a, a, a kappa
1: is this creature. It looks a little, it's reptilian sort of. And it, it actually loves this delicacy that exists in your anal canal. It's sort of loosely translated, or maybe more than loosely, as a small anus ball. And it can either be close to the surface or much deeper inside. And this creature, this kappa, will crawl up your butt in order to get this delicacy. So, this story is actually set in a French kitchen, in the scuffier kitchen, with a a, a true hierarchy of of Chefs and Comey. It's an unusual story.
0: And that's one of the stories, and it's a four-part anthology. So are there any continuing stories from issue to issue, or does each one contain individual stories?
1: It's actually a story that continues, the game continues through the four issues. There are eight stories told. There's a definite payoff in the end. (laughs) It's a confined story of Kaiden of, of 100 Candles.
0: It's the game. I find it interesting that, you know, you have Get Jiro, Blood and Sushi, and now this ghost story, Hungry Ghosts. Why is it that you and Anthony keep coming back to Japanese culture for your stories? I mean, I can see with the discipline in the preparation of food. Is that part of what it is? Their seriousness of culinary arts? Tony more than I, but both of us love
1: Japanese culture and Japanese food. And Tony used to say that you know, if you could live one place in the world, it would be in Vietnam. But I think that's changed. I think it's Japan. And I think that many, 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 many chefs that you speak with, would, if they could live anywhere in their lives where they would live, is in Japan. Because the aesthetic, the technique, everything that's important to many chefs is... In that culture, Tony is, you know, I've been running with him. (laughs) He's turned me on to cinema and to uh, not to literature. I was into the literature before, but, but the cinema and certainly these stories and, and the cuisine and, you know, when, when we go out the last many times that we've been out, we've been to Japanese restaurants.
0: Yeah, the Japanese experience, uh, the the food, the restaurants, it's, it's uh, very a very spiritual experience the way they prepare their food. I mean, you look at things like the tea ceremony. There's an economy of movement, everything is planned out. It takes a lot of practice, so you you know, you can really appreciate their dedication to their art.
1: Yeah, I mean, have you ever read this book Zen and the Art of Archery? No, I haven't. It's a very short book and it it will explain a lot of the culture to you. I mean, it's about the preparation and the doing rather than the final product. A great Zen archer will not look at the target. It's not necessary. Everything will be perfect unto that point. It just follows the arrow will hit its target. It's not important. That's the lesson that Jiro is meant to live by. If there's a morality to hungry ghosts, I think that it's moving in that direction as well.
0: It Wasn't it while Tony was in Japan, going back a ways, um, was it an email that he wrote while he was there, and what he described, the way he wrote that, actually ultimately led to him publishing his first book, Kitchen Confidential?
1: Yeah, he sent me this email, <laughs> and my wife had just had, a, you know, we just had a son, and she was in our living room, sitting on the floor, nursing this kid, he's probably like three days old, and... uh Tony sent me this email and it was fantastic. You know, it was just in his hotel room overlooking the city and he had been to the fish market that morning. And he just wrote wrote that and I went in. My wife was a publisher and I went in. I said, you have to read this. She was reluctant to at first, but then I finally got her to. And then Tony was just publishing his New Yorker. It was called Don't Eat Fish on Monday or something. I forget what it was called. She had him um, sign a contract for a book. Uh, She made an offer to him and said, um, it's on the table until you come back to America. And then it's off the table. And they went for it. And she asked me, do you think he has a book in him? And I said, he definitely has a book in him. And it was, you know, it became kitchen confidential.
0: Having all your experience in restaurants and writing and working for publishers and writing for television shows, do you feel that your education in literature prepared you adequately for the life of a writer and an editor?
1: <laughs> Listen, I, you know, I chose not to teach. You know, I was naive or confident. I don't know why. I just believed in I faith, I guess. I, I don't even know. Um, prepared? No, I'm like the world's worst businessman. I I, I can barely do anything. I, you know, I just, I just I'm at my desk. And I went to the MFA program at Columbia, and I wrote with really great people. Jorge Luis Borges, Robert Coover, you know, amazing people. I, I didn't feel like that was helpful to me. The only thing that's been helpful to me through the years has been writing. A writer
0: has to write. Is there any th- advice that you would give to students of literature? I mean, in one that you just mentioned, which is very good, is you have to write every day. Anything else you'd recommend that they do? Don't give up. Don't give up. You know, it's just, just keep writing.
1: I forget who I was just reading I've, who said something about you have to get all the rust out until you get to the clear water. You have to write to get rid of all the bad stuff. You just have to keep with it. You have to have faith in yourself. Everybody writes bad stuff, everybody, and just takes faith to get there. And it can be so uh, disheartening at times, but you really just have to work. To stop is, um, it's the end. I mean, it's just, it's obvious it's the end. Uh, You know, for me, I always try to encourage people to, Wake early and get something down. you know you, you wake up with some some thread in your head, and so a lot of times when you're stuck, you can just jot just the thought down and open yourself up and get unstuck. It's a hard thing, it's a very hard thing, and then you you know people get confused about publishing or seeing their stuff in you know as a movie or whatever. And writing, they're very different things. Writing is just writing. It's not publishing. It's not senior stuff that may come. God bless you if it does, but the actual writing, no one can stop. You don't need anyone to write. You can write by yourself and you can excise those demons with no one's permission. That's an amazing gift. There's two things that I look for, you know, one is. Just being delivered, just sitting down at my desk and just being seized by something and, and just letting it come out and you know, kill, kill faster, faster, my novel that came out that way. I heard it was playing a song, you know, I can't play an instrument, but I, I write for music in my head and this music was playing in my head and I didn't know what it was. And it played for a long time. And then I just wrote it down one day and then I just didn't stop. It just came out one complete thing. And that was like a gift. And I, um, up to Arthur Miller's daughter one day, I went to see Death of a Salesman, and I was going in the men's room, and she was coming out. It was so crowded, and I know her. So, and I said, you know, that, this play is just, it was Philip Seymour Hoffman. I said, this play is just unbelievable. And then she described her father telling her he had that experience. He sat down, and that play just came to him over three days or something. For me, that's what a writer longs for. You know, when you're, you've are you worked your craft and then you sort of turn off your brain and then something just happens that you don't think about. But unfortunately, that happens so infrequently. And most of what you do is write and rewrite and rewrite and write and rewrite and try to, gain some perspective on what you're doing, and that is pure craft and discipline, and that is something that you have to earn.
0: And so back to what you said, never give up and just keep forging ahead. Even when you have writer's block, press on.
1: Yeah, that's the time to do it the most. When you have that incredible fear and frozenness, that is the hardest time. And that is the time to, you know, when you have these two voices in your head, one telling you you can do it, the other telling you you can't. And that's the time to excise the, uh, you can't and don't even think about it, but just do it. Just do it. Whatever's coming out, just scribble, whatever's coming. You have to fool yourself sometimes.
0: Now, before we end the interview, I wanted to ask you a few questions that I ask all my guests. The first one is, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation?
1: I guess, it, weirdly, what I like to do the most is sort of like fix things around the house. You know, like the plumbing, the electricity, the toaster, the computer. You know, I like those kind of puzzles that involve me physically in a way. I, I live with a family of surfers, and um, I wish I could surf, but I can't. So, you know, invariably they go surfing and I try to fix the uh, board in our refrigerator, you know.
0: Now, do you like to travel? Is there some place that you like to go to that you could say, hey, Chris, you should go here and this is why?
1: We have a home in um, Costa Rica, in Nosara. We built a house in the jungle overlooking the ocean and it's unbelievably beautiful and full of animals, and I go there and, and fix everything I can. You know, there's, the jungle is always trying to move into our home, and I have to uh, devise plans to try to keep it out. And also, um, things break there frequently, so I'm always off to the hardware store or trying to jerry-rig this or that. <laughs> And everybody else is is in the water, by the way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you were stuck on an island, what is the one book you would want to have with you?
1: There's so many books that I love. Um, I don't know. Believe it or not, right now, I'm reading Stephen King on writing, and that is just an incredibly delightful, self-deprecating, brilliant work. And just for its... Good spirit, and not to mention its incredible acumen, I would choose that book right now.
0: And while reading or relaxing, what is your beverage of choice?
1: I drink a lot of coffee, my friend.
0: Do you have a certain kind of coffee that you like?
1: I, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a crazy person. You know, I grind my own beans. I get it from an organic roaster here in New York City, but it's not—it's not like you know, it's 10 bucks a pound. It's not, it's not like it's expensive coffee or anything, but I just like that. It's dark. It's a dark, very dark roast. But, um, and then I put it in like a mocha, you know, an Italian coffee maker, stovetop and, um, you know, it steams up and I'm sure it does have caffeine, but it's not like coffee that makes you, gives you the shakes. So, and I drink it with, a little bit of hot milk and I do that as well and I drink a lot of it during the day and just always have a cup and I have a cup now.
0: I put a little something in my coffee too, a little bit of milk or maybe a little bit of artificial sweetener and my wife drinks it black and she's like, wait, this isn't mine, there's crap in it. And I'm like, no, it's, I'm sorry, that's mine. <laughs>
1: Well, what kind of sweetener are you putting?
0: Well, you know, I try to be careful uh, with how much sugar I take in, so I, I put something like a, a Splenda. I, I know it, it kills the coffee, but that's what I do.
1: No, I don't think that, but I would recommend Stevia rather than Splenda. Okay. I think Stevia is better for you than Splenda. I think people have told me that Splenda is not a good thing for you.
0: I don't think so, because I find it dehydrates me after a while. If I put too much in and I keep drinking coffee all day, I switch over to decaf, I find myself dehydrated, and I think it might be that, the artificial sweetener.
1: Yeah, well, you got to drink a lot of water,
0: too. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Truthfully, I, I would recommend Stevia.
0: <laughs> okay. I'm going to try that. I'm going to see okay. how I feel. It certainly can't hurt. No. But, Joel, thank you so much for being on the show, and... I'm looking forward to reading *Hungry Ghost*, which comes out January thirty first, twenty eighteen, and there's still time to pre-order it through Diamond.
1: The artwork is is unreal. I mean, I, I should just tell you who um, you know. Paul Pope has done all the covers, and he's doing a story inside uh, called *Boil on the Belly*. And then um, Alberto Ponticelli did the intro, and he's doing uh, this story called Starving Skeleton. It's, that's in issue one. And then the Pirates by Vanessa Del Rey, which is just awesome story and awesome artwork. And there's uh, The Heads by Mateus Santaluca um, in issue two, and Salty Horse, this incredible story by Leonardo Manco that takes place in the Spanish countryside. And then there's um, the Kappa story. It's called Deep, and it's by Sebastian Cabral. And uh, Snow Woman in the issue four by Irene Ko, which is this Japanese beautiful, scary story. And then The Cowhead, that's supposed to be untellable because it's so horrible that just to hear it, you would die. And that's by uh, Francesco Francavilla.
0: I heard he was uh working on the books. That's fantastic, cause i I've met him, and he's a great guy and Vanessa del Rey is working on Redlands right now
1: exactly no we're we are so lucky to have people like that and Jose Villarubia is doing the color, and I've worked with him a lot on both get giros, and he's just a master. He's always asking me like what should I do? What should I do and I always like tell him. Whatever you want, you know, whatever you want, whatever way you see it, that's the way I want it. He's all. He's just uncanny, true artist. All these people, I mean, you know, that's what I was trying to say. For a writer, this is just, it's just so good to work with people like this. Because and, and no matter what, what your script is, it just, they add so much to it. It always comes back ten times better than, than we wrote it.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, thanks for joining us.
1: Okay, Chris. It was my pleasure, man.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe. It's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod. There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. In addition, on the site, I'll be posting my recommended reading picks as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one, your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.